Glad to see everyone out this evening, and I encourage you to take out your Bibles and follow along to test the things I have to say to see if it is by the Word of God. We find it to be such, I hope that we'll take in a plot in our lives that we could all be better servants in the future than perhaps we've been in the past. Part of the preacher training program that I am in, one of the tasks assigned to me has been to come up with a home Bible study series. About five lessons that are just basic things you'll go through with somebody as you do a home Bible study with them. And while these are basic principles that those that are here, that many or most, if not all, have known for quite some time, the things that we go through normally in a home Bible study are things that every one of us needs to be reminded of from time to time. There may be somebody that is a that is a new convert, somebody that's young, somebody that may not have been, quote, raised in the church. Then when we go through these things, where they may have obeyed the gospel, but we're still working on the foundation. These are foundational principles we'll talk about. There may be those that are a little more experienced Christians, but they need to work a little more on the foundation to make sure it's solid enough. They have a foundation there, but it needs to be a little more solid. It's easy at times when somebody may be a Christian for a long time, if we don't spend enough time in studying these principles, that there can begin to be some cracks in the foundation. And so we've got to go back and study these principles again and be reminded. The kinds of things we're going to study can help and increase our faith and make us better Bible students. The study that we're going to begin today is going to be five lessons. Today we're going to talk about the Bible, is it God's Word? Next week we're going to talk about the Bible, and we're going to ask a question, does it matter what we believe about it? Each lesson will begin with the theme of the Bible. Lesson number three, we're going to talk about the Bible, and we're going to talk about the theme and the message of the Bible. There's a common theme that runs through. We'll talk about that in lesson three. Lesson four will be about the Bible and the plan of salvation. And then the final lesson will be about the Bible and the church that is in it. And those will be the five lessons we study over the next five weeks. But let's begin this evening by raising the question, the Bible isn't God's Word, because there are many that begin to question, is the Bible God's Word? Is it inspired at all? Or even what part of the Bible is inspired? To what extent is the Bible inspired? In any study where we begin with foundational principles, it doesn't matter what we see in a passage in, in 1 Kings or what we see over here in Genesis. If the Bible is not God's Word, then the rest of this study needs to be just tossed aside. But if the Bible is God's Word, then we need to dig deeper into study and into understand it. So let's explore that question for the next few moments this evening. Is the Bible, the Bible, is it God's Word? We're going to give some evidence. Four pieces of evidence that the Bible is God's Word first, and then we'll talk about to the extent that it is God's Word. The first piece of evidence we want to look at is the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection proves the Bible to be God's Word. Let's talk about the importance of the resurrection. When we understand the importance of the resurrection, it helps us to understand how it proves the Bible God's Word, and then we'll give evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. You know, there, there are some, or none would deny, could deny that Jesus exists. Even those that may deny Jesus being the Son of God, they, they will agree that based on history, there was a man named Jesus who lived, and he gathered quite some following. But the debate is whether or not Jesus was simply a prophet. Some say Jesus was just a prophet. Some say he was just a good man. 
And then there are others as we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The question is not about does Jesus exist. The question, the question many ask is, which of these is He? Is He a prophet? Simply a prophet just like any other prophet. Is He just a good man or is He the Son of God? Well, according to Romans chapter 1, go to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 4, as Paul is introducing the book of Romans, backing up, we'll back up into verse 1. In Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, now listen closely, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, how? By the resurrection from the dead. You see, if Jesus comes and He claims to be somebody, and He died, but He wasn't raised from the dead, as He said He would be, then the claim would be that Jesus wasn't who He said He was. But Jesus foretells of His resurrection... And when Jesus is raised from the dead, and it it proves Him to be the Son of God. It proves Jesus to be who He claimed to be. Not only does the resurrection then prove Jesus to be the Son of God, if Jesus is the Son of God, then His Word is true. The words that Jesus spoken is true. So if Jesus is raised from the dead, He's proved to be the Son of God. And if He's the Son of God, then we can trust His Word. So here's the conclusion we draw from that. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then the Bible must be God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word being Jesus. Jesus says who He claimed to be. Jesus spoke the truth. And the Bible is inspired and is God's Word if Jesus, in fact, was raised from the dead. But let's give some evidence of that. If Jesus, I think we'll all agree, Jesus, if He is raised from the dead, it proves him to be the Son of God, and it proves the Bible to be God's Word. But was Jesus really raised from the dead? Now, before we deal with the evidence again, we want to talk about some theories as to the empty tomb. Kind of like that Jesus exists. The people won't dispute that fact. The fact that the tomb he was buried in is empty is a fact that people will not deny. They will have all sorts of theories as to how the tomb is empty, but they won't deny the empty tomb. It is significant It may seem as a minute detail when we're reading through the passage. It is significant that Jesus is laid in a tomb where no one else has ever been laid because then if He is raised from the dead, the tomb is empty. You see, if He'd have been in in one of these sort of group tombs where you may have several bodies, He could have been raised from the dead, but you could have gone and said, there's a body over there. It's just a stack of bones. They didn't have DNA tests in the first century to test and see if that was Jesus' bones could have been just somebody off the street. But you see, he laid in a tomb where no one else had ever been laid, which means that if the tomb is empty, then something had to happen. So because of that, there have been many theories that people have come up with. There's three really main theories that people come up with concerning the empty tomb. The first of those is what we call the swoon theory. That is, Jesus didn't really die. So when he's laid in the tomb, he's not really dead. He's just more like he's passed out and he was revived in the tomb. And he came to, and then that's why the tomb is empty. He didn't really die. He just was revived in there because he was just passed out. Well, the fact is, Jesus really died. Was the evidence of the fact that Jesus really died? He was stabbed in the side. They came, you remember the, the testimony of those that were there when they saw he had died, that truly this is the Son of God? 
Jesus had died and he was laid in the tomb. If Jesus had not died and he simply passed out, he still couldn't have escaped. You think about how the women are traveling to the tomb and they don't know how all of them are going to move the stone. But supposedly Jesus passed out with a hole in his side from the sword that pierced him, with holes in his, in his hands and in his feet from the nails that held him to the cross. And then he revives in that tomb, and despite being in a weak, he would be in a weakened state having been passed out for so long, gets up, pushes the stone out of the way from the inside of the tomb, which would have been much harder than from the outside, pushes the stone away, overpowers every single one of the guards and escapes. That couldn't have happened. He said he really did die, and even if he hadn't really died, he couldn't have overpowered them in that in the state that he would have been in. Can't be the swoon theory. Some theorize the disciples stole the body. In fact, this is the this is what is stated by the enemies of our Lord. Remember in Matthew chapter twenty six, when in Matthew twenty six the tomb is empty, and the guards come back, or Matthew twenty eight rather, the tomb is empty. And so, the theory that was going to be given by the by those that were there, by the enemies of our Lord, beginning at verse eleven, you know that they came and they tell him what happens, and they've assembled with the elders and consulted in verse twelve together, and they're going to give a large sum of the of money to the soldiers that are going to tell the story that they fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. That's the theory that was even given. They knew the disciples hadn't come and stole the body. But that's the story they were telling, and that story has prevailed all the way to now. People tell that story still. The disciples must have stolen the body. That's why the tomb was empty. We'll see in a minute why that can't be the case as we look at evidence of the resurrection. The third of those is the enemy stole the body. But the fact is, the enemies had nothing to gain. The enemies had nothing to gain and everything to lose by stealing his body. If they were going to steal his body, there must have been some purpose. By him being raised from the dead, or at least if his body was stolen, that's what his, his followers are now teaching. Then they would have had everything to lose and they would have lost their power because Judaism would have fallen because now the old law is going to be taken out of the way. Now here's Jesus who really is somebody if he's raised from the dead. And by stealing the body, they're giving, they're giving ammunition to those that are their enemies and those that are, teach, that are followers of Jesus. There would have been nothing to gain from the enemies by stealing. By stealing. His body. But that's the theories, the, the three theories on the empty tomb, aside from Jesus being raised from the dead. But let's talk about some evidence for the resurrection. Because this is where we begin to prove the Word of God to be as it is. We've already seen if the Bible is, in, is indeed God's Word, it is if Jesus is who He claimed to be and He's the Son of God, and He is who He claimed to be if He was raised from the dead. So let's see some evidence of the resurrection. Number one, we'll begin with what we just talked about. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Look at Mark chapter 16 with me. In Mark chapter 16, Mark 16 beginning at verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they may come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? And when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so they come in. And as they come in and they see this one sitting there by, you know, in the tomb. And they're looking for Jesus and they're alarmed. But when the first thing they see, when they come in, the tomb is empty. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. The women found the empty tomb. But not only was it found by the women, it was then seen by his apostles. John chapter 20. In John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene, you know, beginning at verse 1, comes and tells this to Simon Peter. And so Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, in verse 3 of John 20, and we're going to the tomb. So, you know, they run together. The other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down, verse 5, and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloth lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with a linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. The apostles came and saw the tomb. It was seen by the the three women in Mark 16. It is seen by the apostles in John 20. Here's more evidence. We already looked at this a minute ago. It was acknowledged and talked about by the Lord's enemies. In Matthew chapter 28, when they have to come up with this story as to why the tomb is empty, and they tell the story that the disciples stole the body, what they've just done is they've just acknowledged the tomb is empty. They know the tomb is empty. It's an undeniable fact. In fact, turn to Acts chapter 2. The tomb is empty is appealed to by Peter in the sermon on, his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, after he deals with Joel 2, in response to what their, to their statement about the apostles being drunk, he answers that with Joel 2. But after that, after he answers that in Joel 2, he shifts his focus and spends the rest of his time focused on Jesus Christ, Him crucified, and the majority of it on Him being raised from the dead. And so beginning at, you know, in verse 22 and 23, he talked about his death, but beginning at 24, he focuses on the resurrection from the dead. That's Peter's focus on that day. But here's what Peter says beginning at verse 30. He's just quoted from the 16th Psalm. And then he says beginning at verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet... Let's back up to verse 29 first. This is an important verse to understand this. Men and brethren, let me speak to you freely of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's just quoted the passage that says, You will not leave my soul in Hades, verse 27, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. He quotes from the Old Testament Scripture and says, Let me tell you about David. He's dead, he's buried, and his tomb is still with us. You know what he just said? David's tomb is not empty. That's important. David's tomb is not empty. Therefore, being a prophet, verse 30, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, 
He's alluding to, to 2 Samuel 7 and the promise that is made there to David by Nathan when he's talking about the one that will come finding its first fulfillment in Solomon in the building of the temple, but ultimately in Christ, who would sit on the throne forever. He foreseeing this, verse 31, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus Christ God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So what Peter's just done in Acts chapter 2 is he said, listen, here's what David said in the 16th Psalm. And David is dead and buried and his tomb is still with us. His tomb is not empty. And he's implying in that that you want to go see the tomb of Jesus. Jesus' tomb is empty. Jesus' tomb is empty. That's what he's alluding to here in Acts 2. Jesus' tomb is empty and David's is not. It's Jesus that David was talking about when he said that you would not leave my soul in Hades nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. So the empty tomb is evidence of the resurrection from the dead. But not only the empty tomb, the change in the apostles is evidence of the resurrection from the dead. Remember on the night of our Lord's crucifixion, all the apostles were scattered, according to Matthew 26 and in verse 31. Not only were they all scattered, Peter denied the Lord not once, not twice, but three times, according to Matthew 26, 69 to 75. They were scattered and scared. And here Peter is denying the Lord. But something happened. Because in Acts chapter 4, they stood up to the Sanhedrin council. Look at Acts 4 with me. If you're still in Acts 2, flip just a couple of chapters over. Acts chapter 4. Remember Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 is where they heal the lame man. Peter gives the sermon at the end of Acts 3. And then him and John, who are the ones there, are taken and arrested. And they're before the Sanhedrin council in chapter 4. And it's there, he says in verse 19, whether it is right... In the sight of God, to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot speak, but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They're telling them not to preach anymore. And yet all of a sudden this Peter, who not that long ago was denying the Lord in Matthew 26, is standing in front of the Sanhedrin council and saying, you can tell us, what you, you be the judge of whether it's right to obey you more than God. But we can't but speak the things that we've seen and heard. Let me flip over just a page in your Bible. Look at Acts 5 and in verse 20. Verse 29, rather. Here again, they go back out. Acts 4 ends with them coming back to the other apostles and they pray for boldness. And then in Acts 5, they're out teaching again in 12 to 16. So they're taken by... They're taken by the, the council again. They're taken by those that are the enemies of our Lord. And they're being put on trial. And in verse 29, Peter this time doesn't put the burden on them. He just comes right out and says it. We ought to obey God rather than man. This man that had denied the Lord not that long ago, all of a sudden something has happened and he is very bold. And so are all the rest of the apostles. In fact, here are people that at one point they didn't even, weren't even aware of what was taking place. Or what was to take place. Remember in John 20 when we looked at it a minute ago? They, didn't even, they weren't even aware that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead previously. They didn't see the tomb. 
And yet when you take these apostles, these very ones that had been once scattered, one of them denies the Lord. All but one, ultimately, gives their, their, their life for the cause of Christ. And that one suffered great persecution. They endured a lot for the cause of Christ. These men that were once scattered. Something changed them. And the change must be due to the resurrection because when the resurrection happened and they saw the resurrected Lord, then they changed and they had boldness. It was after the resurrection that the change happened, after they had seen the resurrected Lord, and then they become bold. The change in the apostles is brought about by Jesus being raised from the dead. Here's what we've seen so far, the evidence of the resurrection. The tomb was empty, the change in the apostles, but let's talk about the change in the enemies. Let's talk about the change brought about in the enemies. In Matthew 27, 22, and 23, they cry out, crucify Him. They wanted Him crucified so bad, they were ready to have Barabbas released. You put Jesus to death. They couldn't stand Jesus. But you know, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, after Peter finishes his sermon... In verse 37, they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? I think it's interesting. Back up to 22 and 23. Verse 22 and 23 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth attested you by God, by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through Him in the midst, as for you yourselves also know Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. You're the one that took Him. You're the ones that crucified Him. Skip down to verse 36. Jesus has made the, He's made the point about Jesus being raised. Peter has being raised from the dead. And if he's raised from the dead, as as Peter's giving evidence of this, the tomb is empty, and it's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Here's the result of him being raised from the dead, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter, Peter's telling them, listen, you're the one, just by your lawless hands he was put to death. This one that is exalted, this Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Christ, is the one that you crucified. And yet in verse 37, they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Something changed the Lord's enemies that day when they heard that sermon. And the change is the resurrection from the dead, because that's what Peter just talked about. They knew Jesus was put to death. They knew Jesus was put to death. They're the ones that put Him there. But it's the resurrection that proved him to be who he claimed to be. And so as he goes through and he makes the point about the resurrection from the dead, that the pains of death are loosed in verse 24, and that David's prophesied of this in 25 through 31, and ultimately he is exalted and Lord and Christ in verse 32 through 36. Then they realized as they heard about the resurrection from the dead, and the fact they knew the tomb was empty, that this Jesus must have really been raised from the dead. And it caused them to change that day. Not only do we have the empty tomb, the apostles, and the change in the apostles, and the change in the enemies, we have many witnesses. Now, if we were on a jury for a court case, 
And we heard two or three competent witnesses come and give a testimony that they saw this event happen. And they gave these reports that led us to the same conclusion. Then we could make a verdict on that. Whether the person, you know, if we're convicting somebody, whether they're innocent or guilty, based on the testimony of those witnesses. If their stories are the same. But we don't just have two or three witnesses of the resurrection. We have many. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is dealing with the problem. There's, there's false teaching about the resurrection going on and he's making the point to the church at Corinth that as this false teaching is going on and you're thinking, well, we're not going to be raised from the dead. If we're not raised, then Jesus was not raised. And if Jesus was not raised, then you're still in your sins. But as he's introducing the chapter and coming to that in 1 Corinthians 15, he begins to list some witnesses. Pick up with me in verse 5. And he was seen by Cephas. Let's fill this list out. Cephas, then by the twelve. Then in verse 6, 500 at one, over 500 at once. Then in verse 7, seen by James. Then at the end of verse 7, by all the apostles. And then in verse 8, he was seen by Saul, at that time Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, as one born out of due time. Let's look at the list of witnesses here. We have Cephas or Peter. We have not even listed here. All the apostles were mentioned at once in verse 5. Then again in verse 7. We have over 500 at once. We have James, the brother of our Lord, and we have Paul. Let's go back to our illustration just a second ago. If there was a court case and we had two or three, comp- what would we say were competent witnesses giving testimony of the same thing, then we could make a, 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 deter- a, a verdict based on that. They come and they give us a story, and then, then we can make, we can figure out what, what really happened by the testimony of these witnesses. And we'll do that on the testimony of two or three. But we're not just talking about two or three competent witnesses. We're talking about the twelve. We're talking about over five hundred at once, on top of of James and on top of Paul. What if you're on a court case and you had over five hundred witnesses give testimony to the same thing? I don't think we could help but make a verdict based on that one. If all five hundred of them gave the same story, they told the same thing. Jesus was raised from the dead. There are many witnesses of it. But all of those 1 Corinthians 15, we'll go through this rather quickly. He was also seen by Mary Magdalene in Mark 16, 9, and by the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 13 through 27. There were numerous witnesses who saw our resurrected Lord. So we can prove He was raised from the dead by, by the witnesses that saw Him. But our last piece of evidence for the resurrection is the change in Saul of Tarsus. Let's talk about the change in Saul of Tarsus. Lord Lyttelton was an atheist who tried to disprove the conversion of Saul. Here was his thought. If I can prove that Saul wasn't really converted, then Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then the Bible is not God's Word. That was his conclusion. But now let's take the flip side of that. If that's the case, if Saul really was converted then Jesus really was raised from the dead because remember, one of the things is that He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
And then if Jesus was raised from the dead, then the Bible is indeed God's Word. So again, he thought if he could just prove this, he could just prove the resurrection. Saul's conversion, he could just prove the resurrection and ultimately just prove the Bible. He concluded there were four possibilities for the, this conversion, what he thought was not really a conversion, but this, quote, conversion of, of Saul of Tarsus. The first was that he's an imposter. That he said and taught what he knew to be false, and it was with the intent to deceive. The second is that this Saul was an enthusiast who just had a simply had an overheated imagination to sort of imagine these things. The third is that somebody that others deceived him by fraud. And then the fourth conclusion is that it must have really taken place. Let's take a look at these conclusions. Here's what his study concluded. Number one, he's not an imposter. Why is he not an imposter? Well, for somebody to be an imposter and to teach that which they knew to be false, there must be something for them to gain. But Paul was not going to gain wealth or reputation or power or gratification. There was no pious fraud. None of these things. In fact, we talk about the, him being an imposter. Don't, he not only didn't have, wasn't going to gain these things, Saul was actually giving these things up by the obeying of the gospel. And here's somebody well-educated sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. Somebody that we're not sure, but if he was not at that time on the Sanhedrin, likely would have eventually served on the Sanhedrin council being a Pharisee. Somebody that could have had great power. Somebody that seems to be of a fairly good reputation among the Jews. Could have had great wealth. Not only did he not gain it by becoming a Christian, he actually gave it up. So the conclusion by Lord Lyttelton was he's not an imposter. So then the conclusion next was that he could be an enthusiast. And his answer was no. Here's why. There's no evidence, first and foremost, that he was an enthusiast. Again, he's somebody well-educated and somebody not vain. He just sort of imagined these whole things that doesn't seem like, like this man that we hear of Saul of Tarsus. A well-educated man is not vain. It doesn't seem like somebody that would just sort of dream all these things up. So his conclusion was he can't be an enthusiast. So that leaves us with two conclusions. If he's not an imposter and he's not an enthusiast, he was either deceived by others or he really was converted. He concluded he was not deceived by others. First of all, this is not something the apostles would have thought of, to deceive somebody that was a persecutor of the church. This wouldn't have crossed the mind of the apostles to, hey, you know what, let's deceive Saul of Tarsus, and then we can get him to obey the gospel. They wouldn't have thought of that. Not only would they not have thought of it, it was physically impossible for them to create a light that was greater than the midday sun. But the light that showed in Acts chapter 9 is described as being greater than the midday sun. How could they have created that? How could they have made a light greater than the midday sun? They could not. Not only that, only Saul understood the voice that spoke. All heard it, but only Saul understood it. If, if it was merely men trying to deceive, either all would have heard and understood, or none would have been able to understood, to have understood it. But the fact that all heard, but only Saul could understand what was being said, tells us it must not have been mere men. It was God that was speaking to him. And not only that, but none of, no fraud, no deception of him 
could have produced the subsequent miracles that were performed by Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul. So that, that led Lord Lyttelton to conclude it must have really happened. Saul must have really been converted. And therefore, since Saul was converted, Jesus must have been raised from the dead. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, then the Bible really is God's Word. Here's a man that began as an atheist, and he began investigating the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And when it was said and done, he believed in God and believed the Bible to be God's Word. Because he saw that when Saul really was converted, then the resurrection from the dead must be true. The resurrection, it proves the Bible to be God's Word. We've already seen the Bible's God's Word by the resurrection from the dead, but let's add some more evidence on top of that this evening. Let's talk about prophecy. Prophecy proves the Bible to be God's Word. There are many prophecies in Scripture concerning Christ. Look at Luke 24 with me real quick. Luke 24. In Luke 24, beginning at verse 44... Luke 24, beginning at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. There are many prophecies written about him. All these things must take place that were written about him. Now, all these prophecies concerning Christ. There's a book put out by Peter Stoner entitled Science Speaks, trying to prove... The Bible true. And Peter Stoner took eight prophecies concerning Christ. Here are the eight prophecies. Born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, that he would be born in Bethlehem. From Malachi 3, 1, that there would be a messenger that preceded the Christ. Zechariah 9, 9, that he would come riding on the foal of a donkey. That he would be betrayed by a friend, Zechariah 13, 6. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, silver Zechariah eleven twelve that the silver would be returned, thrown into the house of the Lord, and then go to the potter, from Zechariah 11.13. He would make no defense of himself, Isaiah 53.7, and pierce hands and feet, Psalm 22.16. Those are the prophecies that Peter Stoner took running this test. Or running, running these odds, I'll give you in just a second. I want to note before we go any farther, each one of these are not something that would require a miracle taking place. There are some prophecies concerning Christ that would have required a miracle taking place. For example, if he had taken the prophecy that he was going to be born of a virgin, that would require a miracle taking place. But these are things that could actually happen. Somebody would be, somebody was born, other people were born in Bethlehem. The proceeding of a messenger, these are things, you know, the come riding on the foal of a donkey betrayed by a friend and so on and so forth are not physically impossible things to have taken place. They didn't require divine intervention for these to take place. So it's important to understand that before we move on. These are not physically impossible things. That said, here are the odds of one man by chance fulfilling just eight of them. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Think about that for just a second. The odds of one man, just by mere chance, fulfilling all eight of those is one in ten to the seventeenth power. You probably haven't used that number lately. I don't think I've ever used it. But here are the, what, what those odds are. Suppose we were to take you to the border at Texas. And we're blindfolding you. We're to take the state of Texas and take little silver dollars and fill the entire state of Texas, the entire state of Texas, two feet deep in these, these silver coins. 
We take just one of all those silver coins. Who knows how many it takes to fill the state of Texas? And we put just we just take a permanent marker and we put just a little black dot right in the middle of one, and we just toss it out there with the rest of them randomly. You're blindfolded. We let you go, and you can walk through the entire state of Texas, and you, no limitation. You just can walk through all the entire state of Texas. At some point, though. You have to stop, bend down, and pick up one of those coins. You know what the odds are you pick up the one with the dot that we wrote on it? One in ten to the 17th power. The same odds of one man by chance fulfilling eight of these. And Jesus didn't fulfill just eight of these. He fulfilled many more. The fact that the prophecies take place many years earlier and Jesus fulfills them proves the Bible to be God's Word. But not only is it proved by the prophecies about Christ, there are the prophecies about the nations. Let's talk for just a second about the prophecies about Egypt. Ezekiel 29, 9-12 says Egypt would become a desolation and waste. In 14 and 15, in the same text, it says it would be a base nation. In chapter 30, it's described as a place where no more prince would be in the land and the land would become less productive. Guess what? Every single one of those have come true. Every single one of them have come true. But let's talk about Babylonia for just a minute. It was prophesied in Isaiah 13 and in verse 17 that the Medes would overthrow them. The Medes would overthrow them in Isaiah 13, 17. Do you know when that actually takes place? All the way later in the book of Daniel. A lot of time has passed before they're overthrown by the Medes. The land would never be inhabited, Isaiah 13 and in verse 20, and according to Jeremiah 51, 43, place where no man would, would dwell. Guess what took place? Every single one of those took place. That's just two. There are many more prophecies. There's prophecies about the city of Tyre, and if you take the historical downfall of Tyre, it matches perfectly with the description that is given of how the city would, be, would fall along with many other prophecies that are given. The point is, prophecy proves the Bible to be God's Word. We've seen resurrection and we've seen prophecy, but again, let's add some more evidence to that. The unity of the Bible proves the Bible to be God's Word. I want you to think about these for just a second. The Bible is a compilation of 66 books that were written over a 1,500-year period by 40 different writers in three different languages. I want you to think about that for just a second. 66 books over 1,500 years by 40, about 40 writers and in three different languages. Now let's suppose for a second we all walk out the door about the same time tonight. And as the people are starting to leave, about 10 of us are left. And a wreck takes place right in front of the church building. And the police come and are trying to fill out the report and they want to get witness reports and they come and ask all ten of us to give a report of what we saw. And we're filling out the report. My story may vary from Donnie's story that's going to vary from Dathan's story that may vary from Stephen's story. Not that we all saw a different wreck, just we may remember different details about how the wreck happened. Things may be from slightly different angles. Things may be just slightly different. We all saw the same event, and we just saw it happen. We're talking 
what, 10 minutes till we fill out a police report? 15? Yet the Bible is written by 40 different people. Not just four people. It's written in three different languages. We all speak the same language. Over 1,500 years, we were talking about filling out a report in 15 minutes. And our reports vary, but guess what? The Bible has complete and total unity and a common theme, which we'll talk about in Lesson 3 of this series, throughout the entirety of it. You think about that. From beginning to end, there's common, there is agreement. There's no contradiction. There's a common theme. In 66 books by about 40 writers over a 1,500-year period in three different languages. You can't help but when you see that, think about the fact that that's because this book is divinely inspired. That's why there is total agreement in the Scripture. But not only that, the survival of the Bible proves it to be the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 25, God said His Word would endure Remember the story of Jeremiah chapter 36 where Jehoiakim, where, where it's brought to Jehoiakim and he takes the, the knife and he cuts the word that was brought before him and he cast it into the fire. And after he's cast out the parts he didn't like, guess what? You turn right around and they wrote it again. God's word has endured. It has endured much. In the dark ages there were Bible burnings, but guess what? We still hold in our hands the Word of God. It's still here. Voltaire said, within 50 years, the Bible will no longer be discussed among educated people. It's been a lot longer than 50 years. Robert Ingersoll in the early 1900s said, in 15 years, I will have this book in the morgue. We stand here over 100 years later, still talking about the Bible today. In 15 years, the Bible was still there. A hundred years later, the Bible was still there. Robert Ingersoll was the one in the morgue within 15 years, not the Word of God. God's Word is endured. It is endured from the first century all the way into now, and it will continue to endure to the end of time because it is inspired by God. And those four evidences prove it to be the Word of God. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead proves it to be the... The Word of God, and we've seen abundant evidence that He was raised. The power of prophecy, whether about Christ, whether about nations, and many other things, prove it to be the Word of God. The unity of the Bible, the complete and total agreement from beginning to end have proved it to be the Word of God. The survival of the Bible. The survival reminds me of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. We were there earlier. Or in Acts 5. They're telling them that the apostles no longer to preach. And they send the apostles out for a moment, and Gamaliel is giving the advice, and he said, Listen, if this doctrine's from men, if this doctrine's from men, there have been many other people that rose up and claimed to be somebody. If this doctrine's from men, give it time, it's going to die down, just like all the other followings did. And if this is from God, basically his, what he was saying was, You'd be a fool to fight it. And here we stand, 2021, and we're still talking about the Bible today. But we've seen evidence that the Bible is inspired, but let's talk about the fact that it is completely inspired. God's Word is completely inspired. Many have called into question how much of the Bible is inspired. Is all of the Bible inspired? Every bit of it? 
Is every word inspired? Or maybe it's just the thought that was inspired, not the very words that are written. Maybe it's just the thought was there, and then it was left up to the individual writers to put it however they thought best. So it's the thought inspiration, not the words. Let's talk about that for just a moment. First and foremost, let's, let's see the fact that what we call plenary inspiration, that is, all of it is inspired. One of the memory verses we probably all learned when we were kids is 2 Timothy 3.16. For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, it's all Scripture, is given by inspiration of God. Think about 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn with me there to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter's talking about the prophetic word of God. And in verse 20, he says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You don't open up your Scripture, and here's what Isaiah thought. And here's what Jeremiah thought. And here's what Daniel thought. And here was their interpretation of these things. But they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is inspired of God. Peter points that out and Paul points that out. But not only do we have plenary inspiration, we have the very words inspired for our verbal inspiration of Scripture. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture... All Scripture. The word for Scripture means that which is written. All that was written is inspired by God. All that's contained within His Word is inspired by Him. But not only that passage, I think no passage in Scripture better points that out than 1 Corinthians 2.13. This passage should be familiar to us as it was in our Bible class just last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. These things we also speak... Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. It's not the words of man that are recorded. Not the words of man's wisdom, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches. I want you to think about this for just a second. If, as some believe and teach, it's the thought that was inspired, but it was left up to the individual writers to put it however they deemed best, then the words that would be recorded would be the words by man's wisdom. Now, if it's just the thought that was inspired, but the man just chose the words and not the very, because the words weren't inspired, then it would be the words chosen by man's wisdom. Because God tells Paul, I want you to write about this subject over here. And Paul says, well, let me think about that for just a minute. Yeah, I think this is the best way to put that. Guess what? That's Paul's wisdom. That's man's wisdom. But in that, this not by man's wisdom, but it's by words which the Holy Spirit teaches. It shows us the fact that the very words that are recorded are inspired. Some teach that... The, the reason for saying that the words aren't inspired is you can go to a passage and say, oh, I don't think that's what that really means because I think that's just what Paul thought of what God told him to write. That's what, that was Paul's wording. And you see, we shift the blame from us not wanting to follow to the writer because they didn't convey the message clearly. But the fact is, the very words were inspired. Comparing spiritual things was spiritual. 
The very words that are written are inspired by God, just like the very thought is inspired by God. In fact, I want you to think of this for just a second. The Bible is both plenary and verbally inspired. We've seen that. 2 Timothy 3.16, 1 Corinthians 2.13. The Bible is both plenary and verbally inspired. To believe anything else requires making God a liar. Because God said that the words that He said that, he, that, that were given were inspired. If you believe anything else, then you require of necessity making God a liar. Now, who wants to be charged with making God a liar? I certainly don't. I don't think any of us here would. But to deny the verbal inspiration of Scripture is to make God a liar. The Bible. Is it God's Word? We've seen this evening that the Bible is indeed God's Word. The resurrection has proved it. Prophecy has proved it. The unity of the Bible has proved it. And the fact that the Bible has endured through much persecution has proved it to be the Word of God. We've seen that it is inspired completely and totally. It's not just the thoughts that are inspired, the plenary inspiration, but the very words were inspired. It's verbally inspired. Hopefully we can, we are encouraged by these things and we can take these and we'll spend time in study of these, these foundational principles, but they can help us increase our faith when we're reminded of them from time to time. It may be that there is one or more present this evening who has never responded in obedience to the gospel. If you're here and you've heard the word of God and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, are you willing to repent of your sins? To acknowledge your faith in Him and to be buried in the waters of baptism, to rise and walk in a new, newness of life? When you've done that, you'll have the comfort of knowing that if your life was to end, that you would have the home in heaven. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but somewhere along the line you've not lived as you should. If you're willing to repent of your sin, to confess your sins and repent of them, and pray to God of forgiveness, then do so. If that's of a private nature, take it to Him privately in prayer, but if publicly, then we'll pray with you and for you for God to forgive you. But no matter your need, if we can assist you in any way, would you not come as together we stand and sing?